All right, watch this video as we get started. Okay, should have come with a Kleenex warning, uh, but, but that's, a, that's all right. You guys for sure thought that that little kid wanted to open that gift. I did too, so uh, I'd seen it already, so I knew. But uh, as we think about the third week of Advent and a week of joy in the Christmas season, what it means to give gifts and receive gifts, I want to put this phrase in front of you that we experience joy in the Christian life through surrender. Everything we're going to look at this morning in Mark chapter 10, Philippians chapter 4, is we experience joy in life when we surrender our lives to God and to others. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Famous verse here, famous story that if you've been around church a little bit, you might have be familiar with. If you've not, no big deal. We're going to jump into it. As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him. Now let me set the story for you here. As Jesus is setting out on this journey, that word journey there is the key word in the book of Mark where Jesus is on the way. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is on the way. He's leading the disciples on the way, on the way to Jerusalem. So the word journey there is fine, it just misses a key element in the Gospel of Mark that here is another instance of the word for way. Jesus is on the way, he's leading his disciples on the way to Jerusalem that's gonna lead to the cross and the resurrection. 
And at this time, this man runs up to him. Now, we know from other Gospels in the New Testament, and what we're going to find later is that he's a young man and he's a wealthy man. But right here in the Gospel of Mark, we're meant to read this story in opposition to what just came before it. So just before it, we have the story of the little children that are coming to Jesus. And these children are coming to Jesus. They don't have money. They don't have health. They don't have anything to bring. They are coming to Jesus completely vulnerable as children. And Jesus looks at the children and says, this is the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like to experience God's work in your life. And now we're going to read a story that should feel completely different than the one that came before it. So what happens when this man runs up? He's sitting out on this journey and a man ran up and he knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's his question about here? His question is about what's gonna happen after I die? I have all these possessions, I have all this wealth, I've done all these things, and there's doubt in his mind about whether or not that's going to matter after he dies. Think about some of the people that you know in your life who are extremely successful in business, extremely successful in life, have all the wealth, have all the possessions, and what is that going to matter for eternal life? They still have doubts, they still have questions, they still have uncertainties, and what is the man asking here? He is saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And there's the danger. Don't miss this. I know it comes early in the sermon, but this is so crucial. How many people live with this aching doubt inside of them, have I done enough to go to heaven when I die? As a pastor, I can't tell you the number of conversations I have with people, people who have been in church their whole lives, and they come up and they have this fear Pastor, have, have I done enough to have eternal life? And you feel the weight of that question, right? And, and the, the pain of that question is we're asking the wrong question at that point, which is what Jesus is going to point, point at him to. But this fear, have I given enough? Have I done enough at church? Have I attended church enough? Have I done enough good things in life? Friends, if you are here this morning, and you have that question, you ask yourself that question, have I done enough to have eternal life? Have I done enough to go to heaven when I die? Hear me out, watch where this is going, but we're asking the wrong question at that point. Verse 18, verse 18, how does Jesus respond? Well, no surprise, when Jesus is asked a question, how does Jesus normally respond? With a question, and so he's gonna respond here, and he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Quick warning, this verse has been twisted and manipulated and misused to say that Jesus is not presenting himself as God. That's not at all what's happening. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, you can see how Jesus is revealing himself to be God with us. But what Jesus is doing right here is he has to counter a misunderstanding that people have about him. And so right here, the question that Jesus is dealing with is not whether or not he is God with us. He's trying to correct the understanding that this man has about him. This man is coming to him because he believes Jesus to be a good teacher who's going to give him more advice about how to do more good things in order to inherit eternal life. And here's what Jesus does that's so fascinating. He forces this man to rethink his definition of good. He forces this man to rethink what does it really mean 
to live a good life. And we understand that in Oklahoma, in the world in which we live. Because let's be honest, we are surrounded by a lot of really good people, people who are seeking to live good lives and do good things in the world, and yet that doesn't answer our deepest needs. That doesn't answer our deepest questions about what it means to have a relationship with God, to be with him for all of eternity. And so Jesus is going to force this man to rethink the good life. Everything that he's imagined about what the good life looks like, Jesus is gonna let him rethink that. Now watch what he does, verse 19. How does Jesus go about this? Verse 19, Jesus says to him, you know the commandments, do not murder. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. In other words, Jesus is going to connect with this man right where he is. This man is focused on what he's done in his life, and so Jesus takes him to the second half of the uh, Ten Commandments and says, you know what to do. You, you know the life that God has called us to live. Notice what Jesus doesn't mention, though. He doesn't mention the first part of the Ten Commandments, about having only one God and worshiping God with your whole life because that's where this guy is struggling. And so Jesus is going to meet him at the point of, hey, you know what to do. You know what the Christian life, or he wouldn't have said Christian life at this point, you know what a life devoted to God is supposed to look like, verse 20. And the man said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him loved him. Now we could read that phrase, all these I've kept from my youth, and say there's no way he had done these, but, but that's not Jesus' disagreement. Jesus meets him and says, this is the guy that is devoted to keeping the second half of the Ten Commandments. He's tried really hard to live a good life up to this point, but Jesus knows he's not happy. Jesus knows this man is, has doubts. He has doubts about eternal life, and how does Jesus look at him? He loves him. Sometimes, hear me out on this, sometimes what keeps a person from fully trusting God, giving their lives to God, is because they have a skewed view about how God sees them. How many people have been kept away from church, have been kept away from following God because they think that God is constantly angry with them, constantly frustrated with them, constantly disappointed with them. If you go through your life feeling like God is constantly disappointed that you have not done enough things, it's gonna be a pretty miserable process and you're gonna end up with a skewed view about who God truly is. In this situation, with all of this man's doubts and uncertainty, how does Jesus look at him? He loves him. He loves him. And here's the key. He loves him enough to challenge him, to tell him the truth. Loving someone often means challenging them and telling them the hard truth, telling them what they need to hear. Jesus loves him. And what does he say to him because he loves him? He says, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Now you might think, uh, that's a lot more than one thing. <laughs> Go, sell, give, come, follow. That. It feels like a lot of things. But what Jesus is saying is the one thing that this man lacks is complete surrender of his life before Jesus. The one thing he lacks is he doesn't need to do more commandments. He doesn't need to do more things. What he needs to do is put out his hands and surrender and say, Jesus, 
My life is yours. I trust you. I believe you. I follow you. That is what Jesus is looking for here. If you're here this morning and you have doubts about your Christian life, if you have doubts about your salvation, Jesus' word for you this morning is not that you need to do more, that you haven't done enough. His word for you is open your hands. Surrender your life to him. Trust him. Because in him we find life. In him we find salvation. What does the man do? Surely the man does this, right? Like surely he, he, he does this. Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I would ask you, is there any sadder verse in the entire Bible than this verse right here? Here's this man who has been offered eternal life, who has been offered all of the joy of the new heavens and the new earth, who's been offered Jesus' love and peace and life. All he has to do is lay down his idols, lay down his possessions, put his hands in front of him and say, here's my life, and he would receive thousands of times more in return, and he can't do it. Now his possessions, they don't ultimately make him happy, do they? Because we know that he left and he's distressed. He's sad, he's not happy about what he's going back to. What he can't handle is what he's asked to do, which is surrender his life to Jesus. Now, I was trying to think of an illustration for this. What does this look like? And I have a very dangerous illustration, not as dangerous as comparing church members to geese, uh, which, which I did a couple of weeks ago. Um, you all were more than gracious about being compared to geese, so I, I'm, I appreciate that. But, um, so here's my, here's my illustration. This is dangerous politically and culturally, but, but here we go. Kids, you're gonna have to Google this. You're gonna be too young for it. But back in 1989, the Dallas Cowboys stunk at football. Like, it was not good days, all right, for Dallas Cowboys football. I was a little kid watching Cowboys football with my dad, and the Cowboys, had this player named Herschel Walker. Um, all right, bad timing, I realize, you know, in the world to, to do this, but it just, it works, okay, it works, so stay with me. Had this player named Herschel Walker. They trade Herschel Walker to the Vikings, and what is probably one of the most famous trades, maybe the most famous trade in NFL history. And everybody's like, you're giving up this incredible player, this franchise player, this Hall of Famer, you're giving this up, what are you gonna get in return? Well, how about multiple championships in return? You give up something that you value so much, and in return, you get more than you could ever ask or imagine. Now, take that silly illustration, elevate it a million times, and that's exactly what is in front of this guy here. He has these possessions. There's a lot of possessions. What could it matter, though? What could it matter to hold on to his life if all he has to do is let go of his idols and his possessions, and in return, he's gonna receive more than he could ever imagine. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Now why are the disciples amazed at what Jesus says? Well, number one, <laughs> The disciples are probably looking around saying, uh, Jesus, we're barely making budget here. 
and you just let a really wealthy guy walk out the back door. Like, uh, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense here. We should be trying to attract people who are wealthy, not, not send them away. And on top of that, at this time in the world, having wealth was a sign that God was blessing you. And so the fact that Jesus would not see this man's wealth and immediately welcome him into the kingdom of God is shocking to the disciples. They equate wealth, that's the good life, that must mean you're a part of the kingdom of God, and Jesus turns that inside out. What does he say next? He says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, now, back in the day, there was an interpretation of this verse, an idea that there was an old gate and the wall in Jerusalem and a camel would have to kneel down to go through the gate. Or some people say it's like a, trying to pull a rope through the eye of a needle. Scholars have pretty much debunked that. That's, Jesus is literally saying it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's putting up, it's hard to let go of your idols. It's hard to let go of the things you cherish in this world in order to lay your life down before the God of the universe. It shouldn't be hard, but it is. Verse 26, they were astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. How could someone ever come to lay down their possessions, lay down their life, surrender their life to Jesus? It's through the power of God. God will redeem your past, and God will transform your future, and God will change your life for all of eternity. All you have to do is surrender your life to him. What does Peter do here? Peter says, "Uh, Jesus, we left everything and, and followed you. Like we did, the disciples did, what this man refuses to do. And so in verse 29, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is saying to Peter, I realize what you've given up. I realize what you've done, and you have no idea how great the reward and return is going to be for that. Now, you may hear that. You may hear that verse and say, whoa, time out, Owen. Time out. That sounds a lot like the prosperity gospel. Like, I didn't think that was in the Bible. What's what's this idea that I give my life to Jesus, and in return, I'm going to get all these things back? Here is why that is not the so-called prosperity gospel. Here's what makes this different. In this situation, the returns back to this man come not because he's done a couple of things, but because he has surrendered his life to Jesus. The surrender happens first, and then the return. The surrender happens, Jesus, you can do with my life whatever you want, and then God will bless you however he sees fit. This is not some like give and take type of situation. This is my life laid before you. God, I trust you to take care of it. Here's the other reason it's not the prosperity gospel. What does he get? Persecutions. You know, imagine calling like 1-800-HOLY-RAG and on the other end, instead of them sending you a bunch of like uh, rewards and gifts and possessions, they say, your life is going to face persecution for the next couple of months. And you're like, oh, this is not religious TV. Like I thought I was supposed to call in and give something and I got something really good back. Jesus says, you give your life to the Lord, 
He's gonna give you back more than you could ever imagine. And let's be honest, it's gonna be hard at times. And there's gonna be persecutions. And there's gonna be difficulties along the way. But you don't have to fear because you've given your life to him. That leads to the next verse. Connect that to the next verse. Verse 31. Many who are first will be last. And the last will be first. This is the same idea back early in Mark chapter 8. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So back in the 1800s, there was a Wesleyan missionary named James Calvert. And in 1838, James Calvert and his family left to go to serve as missionaries in Fiji. On the way to Fiji, the ship that's taking them to Fiji to serve as missionaries, the ship captain says, you don't wanna go there. If you go there, they're gonna kill you. You're gonna die. And Calvert says in reply to the ship captain, we died before we came here. One of the great missionary mic drops in history. Like, we died before we came here. I don't care what they do to us because we have already given our lives fully to the Lord. I'm crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. To live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the approach of Calvert. We died before we came here. How do you experience God's joy and power and hope at work in your life? Two words, surrender, salvation. Give, receive. The way you experience God's joy and power and hope and love in your life is you lay your hands out in front of you like this and you say, God, everything I have is yours to begin with. My life is yours. I'm not gonna hold on to these possessions and idols. I'm not gonna try to live for myself. Everything I have, my hands are in front of you. I'm gonna give up this terrible attempt to get my own life together. If you're here and you just keep trying to get your life together over and over again and it's not going well, your response is this. God, I, I can't get my life together. You are my only hope. If you're here and you've been trying to find joy and hope and security and possessions and doing more things, this is your response. God, here's my life. Surrender to you. I give everything I am to you. And when we do that, we receive God's salvation. We receive his grace. We receive his transformation. It happens now in this life, and it happens for all of eternity. We will never receive all that God wants to give us when our heads and our hearts and our hands are full of other things. When we're carrying around in our head and carrying around our heart and carrying around our hands all these things that we're trying to hold on to and control, you'll never be able to receive what God truly wants to give you in life. This is the posture of the Christian life. This is what we've been called to. God, I give my life to you. Now, Amanda and I were talking about this last night, trying to work through this idea. What prevents this? Like, what keeps us from getting here? What, what stands, why would we not give up our life in order to receive all that God has for us? What stands in the way? One thing that I think stands in the way of this is we don't truly believe that God is good. We don't truly believe that what he wants for our lives, what he wants to give us, that who he is, is good. And if you don't believe that what you're going to receive in return is better than what you already have, you'll never give it up. 
If you don't believe that what you're gonna receive in return is better than what you already have, you'll never give it up. And so until we believe that God is truly good and what, what he wants for our life is best, we'll continue to hold on to those things. And the other reason we don't give them up is because there's security found in what I already have. Like, I can see this. It may not be much. You know, it's my life. I'm trying to do things with it. I'm trying to hold on to these things. I can see that. I can't see all that God has for me. So I would rather hold on to those things than give them up before the Lord. The call today, the call today for your life is that you would surrender your life completely to the Lord. It might be for the very first time you do that today. God, I've been trying to get my life together. I've made a mess of things. I'm trying to hold on to the things of this world to give me significance and joy and peace, and I just have to let go and lay my life before you. That that may be the call of God on your life. Or you may have been a Christian for a long time, and you've got sucked back into this idea of living for the world, trying to do enough to please God, and your response today is just to go home with your hands open. God, here's my life. I have no idea what you're gonna do with it, but I trust you, and you are good, and I'm gonna receive whatever you have for me. Now the question is, what does it look like to do that? What does that kind of life look like? I'm glad you asked. Philippians chapter four, all right? Let's look at this. We're just gonna look for a second at Philippians chapter four. So if you scroll down on your phone, flip over in your Bible a little bit. We've been looking at Philippians four while we've been going through Advent, and I want to use a couple of verses from Philippians to give you a picture of what the surrendered life looks like, what it looks like when we find joy because we give our lives to the Lord and we receive from him all that he has for us. What does that look like? Philippians chapter four, let's start in verse 10. It says there, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So Paul is writing to the Philippians. He loves them, he's in prison, but he's been connected to this church and they've ministered to him and he's ministered to them and now they've reconnected. And it brings incredible joy to Paul's life that they are caring for him again. Verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So Paul's saying, I'm so glad that we've reconnected. I'm so thankful for these gifts that you've been giving me. But I, I didn't ultimately need those things because I've learned to be content. Surrender of your life to the Lord is only learned in the school of hard knocks. That's how we learn to surrender our lives to the Lord. We learn to surrender our lives to the Lord when we keep trying to hold on to things ourselves and it just doesn't go well. And we're like, oh yeah, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's in control, I can trust him. And then you know what happens about a month later? We're back to holding on to things and trying to do enough to get ahead. And God says, no, no, remember, remember. Surrender grows over time. We learn over time how to trust God with our lives. God, everything I have, my hands are open before you. This last week, I was reading a book about a lady who in the late 1970s walked across the western half of the Australian outback with a pack of camels. Fascinating book, uh, not rated PG, so just a little heads up there. I'm not endorsing the book or the content, but it's a fascinating story. She walks across the western half of the Australian outback with this pack of camels. And one thing she points out is on this journey, 
She starts off like most of us do on vacation with way too much stuff. Her camels are packed down. She's carrying all this stuff. And the more she goes on this trip, the more she gets rid of stuff she realized she didn't actually need. And she comes to find joy in the journey that she's on. Better illustration, it's kind of like parenting where with kid number one, they sell you like 500 things you didn't actually need, but you really think you need with kid number one. And then by kid number three, you're just really impressed you took diapers to the hospital. Like it's uh, this incredible achievement at that point. We start out thinking we need all these things in life. And the further you go in your relationship with the Lord, the less you actually need to make you happy. The less you need to find joy. The more you learn that the Lord is good and that he is gonna provide for you everything you need, the more peace and hope and joy you find in life. Verse 12. Paul says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Ah, yes, Philippians (laughs) 4.13. Maybe one of the most popular verses uh, in, in the American culture almost guaranteed to show up at a sporting event. So I was thinking back this week, fifth grade Owen, we're at an elementary basketball tournament. I can clearly remember this. My mom, who learned to play basketball in a six-on-six basketball world. Anybody play six-on-six girls basketball, ladies basketball? Fantastic, yes. So uh, my mom was a ferocious defender in six-on-six women's basketball. So when we got to elementary, she was adamant that we were gonna be involved in basketball. And her and one of the other teachers took us fifth grade basketball tournament. We're at a key moment in the game. I remember my friend getting ready to, to, to shoot a free throw, and fifth grade Owen walks up to him and gives him the Philippians 4.13 speech. Like, but I know you can do this. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Like, I know that's just not what this verse means. To do all things means that we can face all things. We can endure all things. It doesn't mean we can accomplish anything we want to accomplish. It means whatever is placed in front of us in life, plenty or in need, we can face it because of Christ's work within us. Paul says, I don't need anything else. I don't need anyone else. Whatever comes at me, I know I'm okay because of Christ. But hey, Philippians, it was really kind of you to send me that gift. Like, I really appreciate that God used you to encourage me. Verse 15, you Philippians, yourselves, know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership. Partnership is that famous uh, New Testament word, koinonia, fellowship, partnership, sharing, we're in this together. You entered into partnership with me. It's, It's spiritual friendship. It's not like a business partnership. It's spiritual friendship. This process of giving and receiving, you guys were with me in this. Verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Last Sunday night, and you can access this on our Emmaus podcast or or the website, but when I was sharing our State of the Church address, there was something in there based on this verse that I just want to say again this morning. One of my concerns as a pastor and, and the challenge that you have of being a church member is if we're not careful, 
it starts to feel like all we ever do is ask something from you. <laughs> we just want you to give, we want you to attend, we want you to volunteer, we want you to help us. It's, it's just always asking for things from you. But before I ever ask anything from you, I want you to know what I want for you. What I want for you is way more important, and it's that you would know and be loved by God, that you would be secure in your salvation, that you would be filled with the Spirit, that you would be connected in relationships to believers. What we want for you is far more important than what we want from you. And if you're called to give, if you're called to serve, if you're called to attend, that process should actually yield spiritual fruit that as you're called to do these things, you're not just filling in a gap, you're not just giving toward a budget, you're doing something that God has called you to do, and as a result of doing that, God blesses you. He works in your life. There's spiritual growth and spiritual fruit that happens. And so you may be here, and you get so frustrated about being a part of a church because it feels like all they're doing is asking things from me, and I want you to hear what we want for you, that that is way more important. We want to see you grow spiritually and to know the love of your heavenly Father, to be secure in that. Verse 18, I've received full payment, Paul says, and more. I'm well supplied. I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. It was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. How do we experience this work of God in our lives? We need to remember that it is blessed to give and receive. We are blessed when we give and receive. When you find joy and contentment in Christ from surrendering your life to him, it puts you in a powerful position. In the world that we live in today, hold, hold on to this, I, I want this to be a gift to you. In the world that we live in today, contentment is a superpower. Like contentment in the world we live in today is a superpower because you don't need to always have things from other people. You're not using other people. You're not trying to prove yourself to other people. You're saying everything I need is found in Christ and I am content in him. Students, write this down and take it to the bank. Content people make the best friends and the best spouses. Write it down and take it to the bank. Content people make the best friends and the best spouses because they're not trying to use you to do something for them that Christ should be doing. They're not trying to prove something to you all the time. They just want to share with you in the life that God has given us. When we are content in Christ, we are in the perfect position to be used by him to bless others and, get this, to humbly receive blessings from other people. Many of us, if asked to help somebody else, you find great joy in that. You're like, sign me up, I love to help other people. It brings such joy. If someone asks to help you, oh no, 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 uh, so I'm, I'm good, I'm good. I, I don't need help, I'm, I'm totally fine. What happens in that process sometimes? It's actually a sign of pride. It's like, I'm good that I can give to you but I'm not going to receive what God's trying to do through you. I heard an older person describe this to me one time as stealing another person's blessing. Like, they're trying to be used by God to minister to you, but we put up this wall like, whoa, whoa, whoa I, don't, I don't need that help, I don't need that. Part of being content in Christ is not only being able to give to others, it's being able to receive from them as well. And to know that all that God is doing, all that God is doing 
is to be meant to be done for his glory. It brings good and mutual encouragement in our friendships and brings joy into our lives as well. I want to leave you with three questions. Last slide, I just want you to think about these. And it would really mean a lot to me if you thought about these at lunch or you wrote these down in your prayer journal this week. Let's chew on this a little bit. Third week of Advent, crazy busy time of year. (laughs) Uh, Also a time of year that you're spending a lot more money than you would like to spend at other times of the year. It's a hard time of year. Where do you find joy? Hands open. Surrender before the Lord. God, what are you calling me to give up to you? Like, something that I need to quit holding on to. Maybe it's a worry. Maybe it's a fear. Maybe it's a relationship. A job. A house. I I don't know what it is for you, but you're holding on to this and you're never going to fully experience God's joy and work in your life unless you get to hear. God, I surrender. I, I give this up. I, I, what do you need to give away this Christmas? Like, I, I, don't even, I don't need to hold on to this anymore. I need to give this away. And this Advent season, what do you need to receive? What is God trying to do in your life through someone else that you've been putting up a wall You've been stopping that relationship and God's saying, no, you need to lower the guard. You need to open your hands and receive what I want to do in your life through that person. Would you bow your heads with me right now? Here in just a moment, we're gonna stand up and and sing a final song together, one that our church loves to sing. During that song, your response might just be, you seem to stand and sing with all your heart. Your response might be, I need to just pray. I need to pray, and, and it might feel awkward or, or difficult, but maybe you just need to pray with your palms open, hands in front of you. God, I surrender my life to you. And I would tell you as well, if you're here this morning and you have never surrendered your life to God for salvation, I would love to pray with you. I'd love to talk to you what, about what that looks like. We can talk during this final psalm, we can talk after the service, but do not leave this place trying to do more good things to inherit eternal life. Eternal life is right in front of you through faith in Jesus Christ. Open your hands to him. Father, you are good. We trust that you are good. We believe that. We are content in Christ, and it brings great joy to our lives, God. This week, show us what we need to give up. Show us what we need to give away and show us what we need to receive from you, what you want to do in our lives that we never expected. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.